Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You'll find the notes of this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text we'll be looking at on the back of the note sheet, John chapter 1. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. We'll do so during our time moving through this prologue. It is rich, it is profound, it sets up the gospel, it um, frames it. And so even though this morning I only planned to look at the first two verses, as I was working through the week it kept shrinking, maybe I'd do the first five, then by Tuesday, now, now the first four, Wednesday, three, we got down to two. It is absolutely profound material. Uh, And so I want to move slowly through it. Let's read the first 18 verses uh, of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the glories of your Son. As we consider these words, that your truth, your word, would inform our understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. That we might receive him rightly and truly for who he is, and not for who he is not. That we would stand in awe at the eternal word, who is both God and and with God. Unstop our ears. Give us eyes to see that we may behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John's gospel is written for a purpose. 
And in our introduction, we spent some time looking at that purpose. I will just read for you again what that is. It's so helpful when an author tells us why he's writing. And in John 20, 30, and 31, John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has written this book of signs so that it might produce a response in us, that we might be believing, that we might either come to faith or I think even more likely continue believing. And it's not just believing in Jesus abstractly, but two particular titles or truths about Jesus that John is concerned we believe. First, he is the Christ, the Messiah, which is the the one promised in Moses and the prophets, the, the Lord's sacrifice for sin, that we might see his death on the cross as that promised Messiah, that servant of the Lord coming, bearing our iniquity, punished for our sins, raised for our life. The other truth he wants us to, to believe is that he is the Son of God. And when we considered that, I showed you most clearly in John chapter 5 that the Son of God, at least in John, is a claim to full deity. A claim to full deity. And that is where John starts. He wastes no time. I mean, you can consider how the other Gospels, in contrast, start. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy, proceeding to John the Baptist, to Jesus' birth and his ministry. Mark begins with John the Baptist straight into Jesus. Luke begins setting the date and time with the birth announcements. We're back a little further. The angelic appearings to the parents of John the Baptist and Jesus, respectively. John's gospel goes so much further back. And rather than starting with the humanity of Jesus and slowly revealing who he is, which was Luke's method, He's going to show us through his power, through his miracles, through his works, through his deeds, who he is, so that we would come to believe by Luke chapter 9, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. In preparation for the Father saying the very thing on the Mount of Transfiguration, John just starts there. In the beginning was the Word. And so he is beginning with the deity of Christ. He is beginning with his identity. This, this fits perfectly with his purpose and theme. Not just that we would believe in Jesus abstractly, but that we would believe in Jesus for who he is. So we're going to look at this in four points, just that the clause is here. And we've got to start with this most unique of titles for Jesus, the word. In the beginning was the word. Now your blanks right here are this. The word was Jesus Christ. John doesn't make that clear until a little later in the prologue. But I'll start by trying to point that out to you. Look at verse 14. It is the word who becomes flesh and dwelt among us. That should make it clear this is Jesus Christ. And even clearer, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We're talking about the one who has come into this world to make God known. This is Jesus. Now, I've got to pause again. Technically, Jesus is the name of the member of the Trinity we call the Son, or the Word here, when he takes on flesh. 
Technically, it's inaccurate or imprecise to speak of pre-incarnate son, word, as Jesus. I'll probably mistake that and do that. But Jesus is the name he receives, takes upon himself at the incarnation. Prior to that, he is the word. That's the title here we're using, or the son. And so John begins his... Christology. He begins his gospel with a title nowhere else given to Jesus. This is not a title found on Jesus' lips. Jesus' disciples, as far as we can tell, never heard him refer to himself as the word. John and John only uses this title. He uses it here, he uses it in 1 John, and he uses it in the book of Revelation. But it's a unique title to John. And we've seen that there's evidences inside the Gospel of John that he's writing to people who likely already know some of the material. The references to John the Baptist's arrest. The references to sayings of Jesus not found in the book of John. Like we see in chapter 4, verse 44. And so John is writing to people who, who may already know this material. You may be sitting here already knowing the story of Jesus coming, Jesus dying, Jesus being raised from the dead. And yet John has something for you and for me to take in, to add to, to develop, to strengthen our understanding of who the Christ is. And he begins with this title, The Word, which, what does that mean? I think John intentionally is, is slowing us down here. He, he will get to regular, familiar titles for Jesus. Just look in chapter 1, and as he, is, um, as he is gathering his disciples, in chapter 1, he's first called rabbi in verse 38. Then in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Then in... 45, Peter found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. And then, verse 39, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So we're going to get to very common, familiar titles for Jesus. And yet John begins with something, as far as I can tell, unique to him. And I think he wants us to slow down and consider what does that mean. So, so what does it mean to refer to, I've argued first, this, this one who is the word is Jesus Christ, the one who takes on flesh. What does John want us to get from this? There's been a lot of speculation. In the early church, people like Justin Martyr, apologists for Christianity, tried to argue that Christianity and what it taught fit very neatly with, with Greek philosophy. And so Plato made a lot of the use of the word logos. And so it was argued that, that John was using his um, theory, his understanding. I, I don't think that's right. Plato has a, has a dualism where the, the, the world of thought, the world of logos is pure and good and right, and the physical world is, is broken and corrupted. I don't think that's where John's going with this. The Stoics believed that the logos, the word, was the rational principle of existence. I don't think that's right. Um, I, I think John... Here's my assumption. John is starting with a new title. We're supposed to go, whoa, what? And then let's take our cues from John. In one sense, I think he'll show us what he means by this title as we work our way through the whole gospel. But I think there are at least two clues in the opening prologue of at least two aspects of what it means that Jesus is the word. Let me suggest to you first that Jesus is the word, meaning the word is God's self-expression. The word is God's self-expression. Expression. In this sense, I'm thinking of word, not like an individual word, but like let me have a word with you, as speech, as communication. 
How do I reveal my mind to you? How do I express myself? Well, we generally do it most commonly in words. In words. And if you look at verse 18 at the prologue, we see that is one of the peculiar functions and glories of the word is that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has, the Maesv has made him known. The Greek word there is where we get expository preaching from. You could put translate or explain. It's the function of the word to reveal, to unpack, to explain, to translate the Father. That's a communicative category. And so when John calls him the word and ends the prologue saying it is this word who reveals and makes known the father, I think part of what John is is going with is the notion of word as an agent of communication, of revelation, of expression. D.A. Carson in this commentary says you could could almost summarize this first phrase was in the beginning was God's self-expression. It's it's. Probably got some weaknesses, but it's as good as any explanation I've seen. And this then fits with the Old Testament use of the term, the word of God. Rather than reaching over to Greek philosophy, I think we should reach back to how this word is loaded with Old Testament meaning. Point one here. Um, He is God's supreme communication. He is God's supreme communication. One of the remarkable things about the God of the Bible is he is a God who talks. Don't don't miss over that. Don't skip over that. The God of the Bible speaks. How does he create the universe? He speaks. How does he reveal himself? He speaks. Have you considered that one of the implications of the commandment forbidding images made in his image is that it leaves the only avenue of approach of this God who is, is through words. You can't draw a picture of him. You can't sculpt the statue of him. If you want to learn who the God of the Hebrews is, you need to be able to hear and receive and understand words. That's how the Lord God reveals himself. And we learn in scripture that Jesus is the supreme communication of God. John 14, 10 Do not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus makes it clear the very words that come out of his mouth are only the words the Father would have him speak. Jesus is the revelation, or or more more amazing still, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Let's read this to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And you could have an exercise trying to list how many different ways God had communicated to people through dreams, through the burning bush, through angels, through a donkey. At one point, there was an invisible hand writing on the wall. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. You could make a long list. And and then the author of Hebrews says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, and my ESV has, by his son. The Greek has no his present. He spoke to us in son. It's not good English, which is why most of our translations don't translate it that way. But the emphasis is this. What language did God speak? He spoke son. Jesus is the medium of communication. Jesus is the revelation. And I think that's in part what John has when he says the word. What are we to 
Think about when we think of Jesus as the word. Jesus is that expression, that, rev- that revelation. How do, you, how do you come to know who God is? Through Jesus. How do you learn of what he is like? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Word as a revealer, a communicator. It's a means of communication. And, point two here, A2, he is God's perfect self-revelation. Verse 18 He is the one and he is the only one who is able to reveal, make known, translate, explain the Father. Colossians 1.15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. John 14.9, Jesus himself says to Philip when he says, show us the Father. Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So I think... That'd be one sense in which we should understand Jesus as word. Jesus as the agent of communication, the revelation, the, ex, the, the one who reveals and explains and communicates who God is. I think there's a second, I think there's a second way we can think of Jesus as the word. And this, this is not meant to be exhaustive. Jesus being the word may well be more than what I'm suggesting, but I don't think it's less. The word is God's agent of action. The word is God's agent of action. As much as verse 18 in the prologue stresses Jesus' role, the word's role, as one who reveals, the very next place John goes is to creation, right? Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, So that also fits with the Old Testament use of the word of God, the word of the Lord. So John says he's the word, and then the next thing he tells us about the word after the text we look at today is he made everything, and he does it emphatically. There is nothing that has been made that was not made apart from him. The word is God's agent of action. And then you think in the Old Testament, and again, how fitting this is of what the Old Testament ascribes to the word of the Lord. For by his word, the Lord created the world, right? Genesis 1, 3, God said, let there be light. He he could have cast the spell, could have performed the ritual. He spoke. And this this is what other creation accounts have. The God who is, the God who has revealed himself, not only revealed to us that he made the universe, but how he did it, and he did it through the power of his word. He created the world. This is, this is celebrated in Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, he gathers the water as the sea is a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And we further learn in Scripture that by his word, the Lord accomplishes his purposes. Again and again, what is his weapon of choice? What is his tool of operation to accomplish his will? It's his word. So this is a familiar passage, Isaiah 55. 
10 through 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes from my mouth, it shall not return empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again and again, what we hear is that God gives words to the prophets, and the prophets go and operate in the power of that word, and you will speak my words. And so it's the word of God, frequently in the mouth of the prophet, that has the power to rebuke, to chasten. Listen to Jeremiah's commission. Jeremiah 1, 9 to 10. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. All of that ministry Jeremiah will accomplish through the power of the word of the Lord. So, to summarize, what is John getting at with this title? What are we to understand when we think of Jesus as the word? The word Two things, I think, at least in the prologue or where John goes with it. First, the word is that which reveals, explains, makes clear. And the word as an agent of activity. The word that accomplishes. The word that heals. Psalm, Psalm 100 and, wait a sec, where is it? Psalm 107, 19 to 20. Um, just one other passage. God's people are afflicted. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So again and again in the Old Testament, the tool God uses to accomplish his purpose, that which is powerful, that which gets the job done is his word. It's not the only way, but it's, I think, certainly the central and primary way. And so when John gives this title to Jesus and this is right where we're going next. It is through Jesus that the creation happened. It is Jesus who reveals the Father. I think that's what he's getting at. And in one sense, we're kind of looking at the whole prologue here. But this title, we've got to have some handle to wrap our mind around. So the word was Jesus Christ. Now, let's move on to point two. In the next clause, we have, in, well, actually the first clause, in the beginning. And this is amazing. The Greek grammar has a little more precision than English does. And so what I'm about to give you here for this blank is stretching the English language. But it's bringing out the, the Greek emphasis. In the beginning, the word was already being at the beginning. That, that's, that's the point of the Greek grammar here. When you go back to beginning, in the beginning, we find not the word coming into being, but rather... Imperfect, past, continuous, ongoing action. We look back to the beginning of space and time. We look back and we see the word in the process continuing to be. That's the emphasis. The word was already being at the beginning. And we're here we're talking about absolute beginning. Um, now, most obviously, John here is intentionally echoing the Genesis creation account. I think many of us if not most of us here, got that. How does the book of Genesis start? In the beginning. John's gospel, in the beginning. This is not the only uh, link with Genesis. John's echoing of Genesis continues on to chapter 2. You can see some of these links right here. We get the phrase, in the beginning, and where do we move to next in verse 3? Creation. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ooh. Then, what's the first thing God creates in Genesis? He says, let there be light. Ooh, look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we're in the beginning, creation, light. And as we move forward in our study, I don't have time to look at it now, you'll see that starting in 119, we get a week. 129, the next day. 143 the next day, 135 the next day, 2-1 on the third day. And then what is chapter 2? We get a wedding. So the echoes of Genesis in its structure and theme continue. John, John is echoing Genesis. And I'm not trying to allegorize Genesis at all, but the, the, the connections between the, the, the story and the narrative of Genesis are picked up and continue through John for at least this point, potentially more. And that is this, that John's prologue, he's trying to communicate to us, John's prologue has equal weight and significance with it, with the account in Genesis. John is saying, in effect, what he's writing is as profound, as significant, as worldview-shaping as the creation account of the world out of nothing by God. That's another reason why we're slowing down, just looking at two verses. John is giving us signals to say, slow down. This is heavy-duty stuff. This is heavy-duty stuff. I liken it sometimes to theme music. When You know when you hear the imperial march, it just brings a certain weight. Other pieces of music commonly used in movies, when you hear the theme music, come on, it lets you know this is serious, this is heavy. At least what John is doing here by citing Genesis by borrowing from the structure, is communicating to us, this is heavy-duty truth. Heavy-duty truth. The word was already being at the beginning. Which means then, point B, before creation happened, the word was. The word was. Two points from this. First, that means, most clearly, the word is pre-existent. The word is pre-existent. We see that already later in the prologue in verse 15. What was it that John witnessed? What was it that John testified to? One of the things was this. This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Why, John? Because he was before me. The word is pre-existent. This shows up again in, in John seventeen five. Jesus' prayer Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But moving further than just preexistence, and it may not be seen here absolutely clearly, although I think the next phrase makes it clear, but seen fully clearly in, in later in John is that the word is self-existent. This is what sets God apart as God. You see, all, all other beings are contingent beings, meaning they, they depend on their existence for something outside of them. We, we learn in, in Hebrews 1.3 that by the power of Jesus' word, he upholds all things. The reason this podium continues to exist is because of something outside of this podium. The reason you draw breath this very moment is because of something outside of you. Your existence is contingent, depends on something else, Right? That makes sense? What sets God apart? The burning bush. What does God say? Then Moses said to God, 
Exodus 3, 13 to 15. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And, and one of the things going on there is what God is saying is he is the one who is not derivative. He is self-existent. He has being within him. I mean, philosophers get this. Something, something has to be non-contingent if there's anything. Something has to be eternal if, if there's something rather than nothing. Something has to be eternal. And they debated, Plato would debate whether there was logic. And the scripture's answer is the being who is eternal, is the living God. Is the living God. And so when we see the word already being at the beginning, we're seeing the one who is self-existent. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in John eight fifty-eight when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming that same Self-existent life, being within him, revealed at the burning bush. So the other Gospels start with the announcement of Jesus and John's birth, or they start with John the Baptist, or they start with the genealogy. John's Gospel starts at the beginning of creation, where we find the word in the process of being. He's, he's, he's adding greatness to our understanding of Christ. He's ad- adding tremendous greatness and glory to our understanding of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. Moving on. The next thing we learn about the Word is that the Word was in fellowship with God. The Word was in fellowship with God. And the Word was with God. The Greek preposition with has the idea of being towards or face to face. And here we're getting an inkling of the fellowship between the Word and the Father, the cordial, loving relationship. And again, that's stressed again in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now there's a language of close, familiar, tender relationship. Here, the the Word is faced towards God. He's face to face. Another implication of this point B, this means the word is in some sense God's equal. He's he's accepted by him in this face to face relationship. The word can be in the presence of God and rather than like the angels who cover their faces, who avert their eyes, here is a word in the presence of the Father in verse 18 at the side of the Father. He is, in some sense, God's equal. They're in fellowship together, which is, of course, what Jesus is longing for in his prayer in the garden. Father, 17.5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
So when, back in the beginning, back before creation, back before God said, let there be light, the word was already being, and the word was being in a particular place, in fellowship, towards, face-to-face with God. And then we get point four. And the word was God. Sometimes people want to argue the Bible doesn't teach the deity of Christ. You want to say, do you even, John? Like, it's... This is clear. And I know you may have had a Mormon missionary on your front porch saying, well, the Greek's kind of confusing. It's actually not. The Greek's clear. But rather than than appealing to my authority, if you want to challenge this, just look in verse 3. In case you encounter a Mormon or someone trying to say, well, the Greek's lacking the article, and they're just showing they don't understand Greek. But you can prove it just as easily in verse 3. I got this from John Piper. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, Jesus is either made or not made. If he's not made, he's God. He's eternal. And if he's made, he made himself, apparently. Because there's nothing in the category of things that have been made that were made apart from him. So even if, even if someone wants to say, well, they're... And rather than diving into Greek and saying, well, my pastor said the Greek, and then we're just appealing to authorities and shooting past each other, you can just go to verse 3. Or you can just go to chapter 8, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, or any number of other things. But your translation translates this accurately. And the word was God. Jesus is fully God. I want to pause here with a few minutes and try to make some implication, some application for this. Jesus is fully God. John is writing. This is part of the reason why we spent the time we did on our introduction. John is an old man. He's aware of the other Gospels. He's, been, he's aware of what they teach. And he is writing either to cause us to come to faith or, as I suggested, more likely that we might keep believing, that we might persevere, that we will not fall away. And that means, then, that the material he picks and his emphasis is critical for that, which means... Having a deep, firm, rich understanding of the deity of Christ is of critical importance in believing in him in a saving way and of continuing to believe in him as life gets difficult. This is where John starts. I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he begins right out of the gate, verse 1, The word was God, because he wants us to believe. In other words, the deity of Christ is an essential element in saving faith. The deity of Christ and understanding that he is God is an essential element in continuing to believe. I mean, in the Gospels, we've got people who believe some things about Jesus, right? As much as John's Gospel is written that we might believe and have life, look at chapter 2. Verse 23 When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Good, right? Not Keep going. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And then Nicodemus shows up as an example of one of these people who saw signs, who believed something, but it's not enough. It's insufficient. And so Nicodemus says to Jesus in chapter 3, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. For no one could do the signs you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus 
was willing to go so far as to say, you're from God, you're doing signs from God. Yet Jesus says to him plainly in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things, 312, and you do not believe. Now Nicodemus eventually comes to faith, but make no mistake, in this first encounter, he is not an exerciser or possessor of the faith that John wants us to come to. He's not. Jesus says it. You don't believe. There you go. Now, Nicodemus will come to faith. But I think this gets back to the notion that you, you can't receive Jesus in part. I was having this talk with one of my kids. We had a, we had a gospel chat this week. and Look in the prologue about the receiving, right? So, so those who perish, he came to Israel and they, they didn't receive him. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story, right? But, but, verse 13, verse 12, I mean, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I think part of what John wants us to do is what it means to receive him, is to receive him for who he is. You'll see in chapter 6, Israel is even willing to receive Jesus as their king. He had to depart from them because they wanted to make him king by force. But ultimately, it was the claim of the deity that drove him to the cross. That was the charge of blasphemy. He said he's the son of God. Kill him. And so John wants us to receive Jesus as who he is. And he is God. And, I, and as I was talking to one of my children this week, I, I was making the point, I think most people would like a get-out-of-hell-free pass. Most people would like a free offer of forgiveness. And make no mistake, in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, there's a free offer of pardon. What most people, though, also don't want is a God, a Lord, a King, a ruler, a potentate. And the deity of Christ brings that wing of it in brings that wing of it in. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher. He is God in the flesh. And you receive him by faith for who he is, both the Christ and the Son of God. So quickly, four implications of the deity of Christ. Why might this matter? Two, to encourage you. Two, to to strengthen you. and, And two, to call upon you to respond rightly. First, this means Jesus can be fully relied upon. Go to John 10. Go to John 10. If Jesus is just a good man, just a prophet, just a teacher, I wouldn't trust what he says in John 10. In John 10, he says in verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in surprise? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Notice he doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. We'll get to that later. But look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Now, if Jesus is God, then that promise, you're not going to perish if you trust in him. No one's going to grab you out of his hand because he's God. He can keep that promise. John, at the end of his life, keep trusting Jesus. You can trust yourself to him. He's not going to drop you. He's not going to lose you. He's going to keep it. We sing. He will hold me fast. And we can trust in that because the one who promises to hold us is himself God. One of the implications for us of the deity of Christ, trust him. Rely upon him. Jesus can be fully relied upon. Also, turn to John 14. Jesus can sustain and give help. He has help to give, strength to give, power to give. And this is what we see him as he's preparing the disciples for his departure in the upper room. This is exactly what he does. He knows the shepherd will be struck and the flock will be scattered. And so in John 14, verses 13 and 14, we read, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do for you, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You can't make promises like that unless you can back it up. And only God can back it up. And yet Jesus says, call upon me. Ask in my name. And if it's according to my name, I will do it. If Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than a wise sage, has something more for us than a good ethic, grandiose claims like this can be made and trusted upon. And John wants us to trust on them. Point three. If Jesus is fully God then Jesus deserves full worship. Full worship. In John 5, 23, Jesus says, I'll read you 22 and 23, the Father judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father's purpose is that the Son would receive equal glory, equal worship to him. That's probably the clearest proof of the full deity of Christ because if there's anything we know about God in the Old Testament, he doesn't share his glory. He will not give it to another. And here the Father desires for all to honor the Son even as they honor him. Which means he demands your worship. He demands your worship. And in Revelation 5, 1 through 11, we see that the song we sing, Is He Worthy? They're worshiping him. If Jesus is God, the question is, do you worship him? And and don't tell me you're singing songs. Further in my conversation with my child this week, worship just comes from the old English, worth-ship. And in that sense, we are all worshipers. All of us live as though certain things have value and are worth things. People will sometimes move heaven and earth to get things they have great value. You see the time somebody puts into practicing a sport, practicing um, studying for an exam. It evidences they think that's weighty, that's important. And they may well be. There are many lesser important things on this earth. The, The real question if Jesus is God is, how are you willing to indicate he has worth? If someone looked at your life, would it look like you have a God? Would it look like you have a treasure? Would it look like you have something of value? If Jesus is God, he is the greatest treasure. And he demands our worship. And point four, if Jesus is God, he demands full obedience. 
John 14, 15, right after he says, hey, ask in my name, I'll give it to you. He says to them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, if he's God, he can command us. Yes, he calls us friends, but this is a different type of friend. He's a friend with commandments. He's, he's a friend with the law. The New Testament calls it the law of Christ. And this is, again, when you talk to people where they start to buckle. Because we love our autonomy. We love our freedom. We, we love doing what we want to do. And John wants us to know from the beginning, this one who is the Savior of the world, this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is himself God. Will you receive him as that? Do you want a God? Let me suggest to you, if you think obedience to Jesus is optional, you don't think he's God. Fair enough? If you think Jesus has suggestions, you don't think he's God. You don't, or you don't understand what God means. Absolute power, authority, goodness, wisdom, knowledge. Jesus is God. Will, will you receive from them? I was, I was telling... My daughter, that John, if you go to John 3, this is why people rejected Christ. John tells us why they reject him. There's nobody I know who is offended by the notion of a free pardon. And if you will receive Jesus, if you will trust in him, you are forgiven. You will be brought near to God. You have the power and the right to become sons and daughters of God. But you must receive him as he is, for who he is. This is John's whole point. Not just that you believe in Jesus, but you believe he's the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And that's where the deity comes in. John 3. After... That wonderful verse in John 3.16, so simply summing up the gospel, for God loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But then he's going to tell us why people reject that. I mean, that sounds like such a good offer. Who wouldn't just want a free gift of eternal life? Why would people nail him to a tree instead? Well, verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light. Why don't people come to the light? Because they love darkness. Why do people not come to the light? Because they don't want a God who exposes their darkness, who calls them to turn from their darkness. They recognize, I can't have my darkness and the light. That's the rationale here. I don't come to the light because I love my darkness. Therefore, I hate the light because the light exposes my darkness. So John is trying to make it clear to us, you can't have Jesus simply as a good guy who saves you and gets you out of trouble. He, he is. I mean, that seems trite. He's certainly a lot more than that. But right out of the gate, this one who would save you, this one who would befriend you, this one who would redeem you, this one who dies on your behalf is God. And if he is God, you've got to figure out whether you're willing to act in accordance with that. And I'd suggest to you that the, 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 the value, the worship you give him, the obedience you render to him. like We find out who you think is God when what you want to do and what God wants you to do differ, right? We find out who, who, who you're actually trusting in. Whose word has final authority? Whose word has weight and for many of us, we are God. We're the highest authority. There is no trump above what I want to do. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John starts here with the deity of Christ. Because we must understand he is fully God. Quickly, point B, Jesus is a distinct person from the Father. You'll notice that verse 2 of chapter 1 restates what was found in the first sentence of, of, of the first verse. And the, he was in the beginning with God. So all I'm going to emphasize here is that word, he. Um, now, it's possible that the Greek pronoun is this one, but that we know that the word is a person is made clear in verse 18 and verse 14. And so, very quickly, this is where some of the essential and critical truths of the doctrine of the Trinity come, come into play. Um, even though the word Trinity is nowhere used in Scripture, it is an attempt to explain two vitally important truths. One, God is one. The Lord our God is one. This is the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not polytheists. There's one living God. And yet, amazingly, the one God exists in a plurality of persons. The one God exists in the plurality of persons. This is hinted at in Genesis 1.26 when God says, Let us make man in our image. And it's not that we need to know how this fits together. In fact, if somebody thinks they can explain the Trinity to you, you know, I'd be wary of that. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is simply saying, the God who is, is one. The God who is, is also many. And I, and I want to suggest to you quickly, and I don't think we'll have time for a final song this morning, that... that um, there's some reasons why this matters. It matters that God reveals himself this way. And John gives this to us here. The word is God. The word is, is God and is with God. He is both God himself and yet distinct from God. Or one who is called God in verse 1. In verse 18, it's the Father. And so we come to speak of God the Father and God the Son. Why, why does that matter? Well, one, because God's revealed it. And anything God reveals to us matters. But I'll give you one practical reason why I think this matters. Um, And this is just me aping D.A. Carson again. But there's a reason why the other big monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, don't wrestle with the notion of God as the lawgiver. You, You meet a Muslim, you meet an Orthodox Jew, they get that God has law, God has commandments, God has judgments, God has wrath. They, they resonate with all of that. There's also a reason why they can, I think, struggle with the notion of God being loving. And if you think about it, take, take Islam, for example. It's hard not to conclude, if you think long and hard about it, that if Allah is loving... It's hard to see it as foundational to who he is because in, in, in Islam's theology, Allah can only be loving when there's things to love. In other words, love becomes a contingent attribute. Who was who Allah loving before creation? Love demands an object. And so we can talk about him being loving, but it's hard to see that going all the way down deep to the root of who he is. Same with with Orthodox Judaism. 
Who was the Lord God loving before creation? Before he made the angels? How is that love expressed? And so it's hard to see love as central to the character of God in Islam and in Judaism. But the, the doctrine revealed in Scripture that, that God exists in the plurality of persons is the basis upon which love is central to who God is. Because before you and I existed, before the stars were made, before the angels were created, there is a loving relationship in the Trinity. This is the basis upon which we can say things like God is love. It's, this is what Jesus is yearning for in, in John seventeen five. Now, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. At least twice in John's gospel, I found statements, the Father loves the Son. And when we get to John 17, we're going to find out that all of this creation and all of this redemption is us getting caught up in intra-Trinitarian love. The Father loves his Son, and he gifts to the Son a redeemed people if the Son will redeem them. And the Son loves the Father, and so he redeems those that the Father gives to him. And we're caught up in this. We're caught up in this. The doctrine of the Trinity has practical ramifications. So to summarize, what is Jesus in, in being titled the Word? He, he communicates God, and he's God's agent of, of action. Jesus is preexistent. He's at the beginning. He's already being. He is both in fellowship with God, and he is God. And then I suggest to you that John's purpose in, in hammering starting with the deity of Christ, is both to encourage you to trust him. He is completely trustworthy. Don't don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own wisdom. Don't trust lesser gods. Trust him. Rely on him. Ask for his help. He gives. He turns. Get to John 6. He turns none away who come to him. But you, you need to believe him to be God. Not just a worker of miracles and signs. Not just a good teacher. Receive him as who he is. And understand that if he is God, he deserves all worship. And if he is God, he demands our obedience. That's what John wants us to first see. This one who is the savior of the world is himself God. He is with God. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, these truths are deep. They are wonderful. You're mighty. Increase our faith. Help us to understand that the one who saved us, the one who redeemed us, was with you and yet was God. Help us to glory in the knowledge that the God who is, the God who is one, exists in three persons in fellowship together and that the love that you've poured out on our hearts It's nothing other than the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father that we are caught up in. Lord God, help us to worship the Son, the Word, for who he is and not for who he is not. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.